friend of the show, Shady Rays, wanted to pass on a sweet, sweet deal to our listeners. For a limited time, use code TEAM, capital T-E-A-M, to receive 40% off when you order two or more pairs of sunglasses. Follow the link in our show notes or in our Instagram bio to order yours today. Shady Rays, live hard, we got you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes, another big get for the show. Today's guest is a three-time Olympian, a bronze medalist from 1996, and took a fifth in 2000 and 2004. He won the FIUB Most Inspirational Player. He's a 10-time national champion, and he's represented Canada over 160 times, and 45 of those uh, were a top-five finish on the FIUB World Tour. Please welcome to the show, Mark Heese. Mark, thanks for doing this. Josh, how you doing? Great, great. today? I'm glad you, you took the time to do this. I'm sure our listeners will be fired up when they see your name come across. Well, yeah. You know what? Uh, the older I get, the more and more people uh, don't really remember uh, remember me, but uh, I think there's still a few out there, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> so when you've had some roles like me in volleyball, like working for the OVA, sometimes if you just keep your mouth shut and, and listen, you get to hear some cool stories. So I wanted to confirm your start in our sport. and. From what I've heard, it was you grew up in the beaches area and you got your start at the Bombay Beach Club, which probably should be credited for kind of the spark in beach volleyball. So can you confirm or deny this story or how did you start playing volleyball? Well, yeah, absolutely. The Bombay Beach uh, Canoe Club uh, or the Bombay Beach Club just in the east end of the Toronto beaches. Uh, everybody knows Ashbridge's Bay, but if you walk all the way down the boardwalk to the far east end, uh, that's where Bombay Beach is located and I, yeah absolutely that's where beach volleyball was first played in certainly in toronto uh some would say in the country i'm sure uh kids beach and, and uh, the east coast uh, the west coast potentially east coast have some something to say about that but um, yeah back in the 60s and 70s uh, apparently there was a traveler traveling volleyball players from from the california Mary Jo Pepler, uh, Selznick, I believe, that was walking by the, the club, and he, they saw some volleyball players from the club, and they taught them how to play doubles. Some interesting stories like that, but that's uh, the Bobby Beach history. But that's where I got my start as a paddler when I was, uh, I, I want to say, around 15 years old. My dad was an Olympic paddler, canoeist for, uh, for Canada in 1964, Tokyo, so I grew up in the paddling scene and uh, yeah started paddling but um, there's a three or four beach courts out front of the club and all of us paddlers in between workouts just packed around playing a little bit of beach volleyball so that's uh, definitely how I how I got my start. Now I'd also heard that the Bombay Beach Club was also where some top players got and I think you worked your way into a pretty good group of four that's which is a funny story about john may right is that when you kind of knew you could play this sport at a high level can you give us the a little background about how you got in with uh the john child and john may group that were there well you're right yeah there was uh, like i said there was about three or four courts at bombay beach and us paddlers had our own little hack around paddlers court but the other three or four courts was being used all summer by yeah, the, all the university players, some of the older players that um, at the time just came and play, wanted to play volleyball throughout the summer. There wasn't really any organized tours or anything. But uh, the university kids, uh, kids I call them, but uh, to me they were closer to adults. But John May and, and Andy Cole and Jim Cook and, you know, that whole crowd uh, just played beach all summer. And I 
was just amazed at their, you know, their level and, and the competitiveness of it. And uh, I, you know, just watched. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to play. They were they were older and, and highly skilled, and I just got to watch because I was at the at the club all day, uh, part of the of, of the canoe section. Uh, eventually, one day, I, I did get in with those guys. You know, persistence. Uh, but I kept asking if I could play, and they kept shooing me away. But uh, a couple days in a row, when John May didn't show up, uh, little did we know, or did I know, that he was off trying to sell sell the sport to some sponsors, and that's why he didn't show up uh, for a couple days in a row. But Andy Cole, I think his daughter uh, plays a little bit of beach uh, in the OBA system now, but uh, he said, "Yeah, okay, I'll play with you." And uh, that was my first chance to play with the big boys, and uh, I never looked back. I, I got my chance, and, and we, I, I hung hung in there. And eventually, uh, the next season uh, was the first year of the Pro Beach Tour, the Ontario Pro Beach Tour that John May eventually sold to the likes of Labatt and, and a couple of Nissan, I believe. And I, I got to start playing on that tour the very next summer. I was probably 18 or 19 at the time. Yeah, before we take a deep dive into that, there was one more story I wanted to confirm, and I think this one could have had a big ripple effect on our sport looking back. When you went to McMaster, I think you probably identified as a basketball player more so. Is that true that you tried out for basketball, hoping to make that squad before the volleyball tryouts? Oh, for sure. I was a basketball player coming out of coming out of high school at Malvern Collegiate. If you look on the on the wall for you know under athletes of the year, there's me there, and I'm I'm dressed up in my basketball uniform. I certainly wasn't known as a volleyball player. So when I went to McMaster, that was my intention. I'm going to play on the basketball team, but um, fate would have it a you know kind of a twisted story where i was trying out for the basketball team but i also just coming out of basketball tryouts where i you know i came out of that first tryout thinking yeah i'm absolutely on this team just the level and uh, i just you know I, I had a certain confidence in my basketball ability and i was i walked out thinking i'm definitely making this team i'm one of the better players that was in my mind but uh, I, you know I, again kind of fate, but I walked out of the gym and I saw a sign on the wall that said volleyball tryouts, you know, arrow down to the other gym. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I'd already caught a little bit of the beach volleyball bug just from my summers. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I can play volleyball too. At the time, I, I really didn't know that like, you couldn't play two sports at university, but I went down, did the tryouts. The next day, I look at the basketball, uh, you know, the cuts, and I, I didn't make, I didn't make it. I, I was cut right away, down from seventy-five people trying out to sixty-five. They got rid of the riffraff. Apparently, I was one of the one of the riffraff <laughs> uh, players, and I was, I was shocked. And this is, you know, before the days that you could, uh, you know, complain or, or you know, I phoned my dad, what's going on? He, no, that. That, you know, you just accepted it, and I never even, I never questioned it. I was frustrated for years, you know, why I didn't make that team. But I found out uh, halfway through. It's still something that I kind of ticked off about, to be honest. <laughs> um, I, uh, but you know, as it turned out, it worked out. The volleyball coach, apparently, as I found out later uh, from my assistant volleyball coach, who was younger and you know at a party. Uh, 
I think it was halfway through first year, maybe even second year, where he told me the story that the indoor coach actually went and talked to the basketball coach, or sorry, the volleyball coach went and talked to the basketball coach to say, well, hey, you know what, you could use him for volleyball. And that was it. I was cut. <laughs> and, you know, the, the basketball coach, Joe Razzo, uh, from McMaster, you know, great coach. They did a great job there. He even told the story when I was back there, I want to say in 2008 or something, I was I was a guest speaker at the, uh, I think it was the CIS banquet or maybe the McMaster Athletic Banquet. I was invited back and Joe Razzo's up there telling the story and I'm, I'm kind of gritting my teeth. He thought it was a good one. I'm responsible for cutting the park and responsible for Canada getting a, a you know bronze medal at the Olympics. But um, he thought it was funny. But I was I still had some uh, Herbert feelings <laughs> about it. And I got up there and I'm trying to not you know say what was on my mind. But anyways, yeah, uh, I still think about that. Basketball was my sport, but uh, uh, I guess it worked out. I guess it worked out. Volleyball turned out to be a good thing for me. Yeah, that's that's a great what if story for our sport there. Just the the cause of that one decision. That's that's amazing. So to to switch back to volleyball though, it, mentioning when you were really getting to the beach, that's when the pro tour started. So what were the venues like? How many courts? Because I think people when they think of OVA Beach Tour right now, they're thinking of Ashbridges where there's 103 courts and everything it's grown to, but. In the beginning of what uh, John was starting in Ontario, can you kind of just paint us a picture of what that looked like at the time and who you were playing with as well? Oh, yeah. Ashbridge's Bay didn't really, or Ashbridge's Bay Volleyball didn't exist uh, at the time. The, the, the water was still kind of uh, created a bay in there. There wasn't enough sand, uh, exposed sand to play. And if there was, there was a bylaw against it. These little bylaw signs saying no volleyball allowed. So, you know, the west side of the beach was not an option for volleyball players. Uh, Bombay Beach, and then even for practicing, we went down to Looney Beach at one point, which is right by the lifeguard station. It was a big open piece of sand, so that was kind of our practice territory. But uh, the events that John May created as part of this Ontario Pro Beach Tour was scattered across the province. Uh, Sauble Beach, uh, Wasaga Beach, Grand Bend, uh, Bombay Beach, uh, between those four venues, they hosted uh, the first two, three years of this pro circuit. And that was, uh, yeah, the, the timing was really amazing. I just started, you know, getting into that sport. And um, Fred Coops, who people may know as the Overkill founder, he was a player at, at Waterloo that um, that also played as uh, you know on the beach and he asked me to play after my first year at McMaster. We played against Waterloo quite a bit, and he remembered me at the end of the summer from the year before, and yeah, he asked me to play uh, on the tour. So I, I played with Fred Coops on this on this pro beach circuit, which was amazing because all us university players just had somewhere to play almost every weekend throughout the summer to make a few extra bucks. There was, you know three grand or two grand for first place all the way down to 13th place it's a double elimination format it was a way to make a few extra bucks pretty uh, pretty amazing way to kind of you know stay in volleyball and get exposed to this new sport of beach volleyball nice nice and playing on that circuit is that what gave you the confidence to go to uh i believe your first fib was 1992 is that correct 
Yeah, 92, uh, got, got a chance to go to my first world tour event. Um, you know, and people don't know it, but because of that domestic tour that we had, we didn't realize how unique it was. Really, in the whole world, it was only the U.S., Brazil, and Australia that had any semblance of a pro beach tour uh, or a semi-pro beach tour, which is what I would describe ours. And, you know, eventually after the Labatt, the Ontario circuit was kind of subsiding. Jose Cuervo uh, took it over and we had, uh, you know, another three seasons of Jose Cuervo events. That's when it started going over into Quebec and, and BC and Alberta. And, uh, yeah, and we created our own little beach volleyball community and, and um, association, BVP, the beach volleyball uh, players uh, or professionals, we kind of copied the uh, the model of the AVP in the states, which was pretty big. And people don't realize that because we had that competitiveness, that that circuit, that kind of focus on on competing doubles beach volleyball. When we went on the tour, on the world tour, which was just starting in the late eighties, and and you know only had three or four events every year. Was definitely a kind of a, an experiment, a part-time thing. When Canada went, we were automatically one of the best, one of the better nations because of our organization and our, and our circuit. So yeah, '92 we went, and uh, my, my first partner on the world tour uh, was Mike Chalupka, Chip Chalupka, as many people know. Him. Um, yeah, we were one of the better better teams. Uh, we finished uh, in the top ten right off the bat. Uh, Eating countries like Germany and and Spain and and uh, Russia in our pool, and those countries just hadn't gotten to that point yet. There was a bunch of indoor players that were just thrown into, hey, you're gonna go represent represent Canada at these events. Or sorry, represent your uh, your country at these events. But there was really no beach volleyball foundation in, in many of those countries yet. So with that being 1992, at what point did you want to, one, play this for a profession and be a professional beach volleyball player? But do you remember when talks started to, to join the Olympics? Because 92 being your first event, all of a sudden the Olympics are in 96. But I don't, I don't know if it's fair to say at 92 you knew it was going to be an Olympic sport, right? That maybe wasn't even in, in public knowledge yet. So just help us out with the timeline of when it all came together that, one, you could play this for a living, and two, you could be an Olympic athlete at it as well. Yeah, the truth is, I I was yeah I never really thought that beach volleyball could be a profession till really until I mean truthfully uh, for myself uh, it was probably after we won the Olympic medal and all of a sudden the world tour you know became a a real reality for me and, and as a, something I could do full time but scale it back a few years in 92 when we first went when i first went to that first event in Almeria, spain it was right after the 1992 olympics yeah beach volleyball wasn't a sport but indoor of course was a big sport and they invited a few kind of stars down right after barcelona i remember steve timmons who just came off uh, what i believe was a gold medal for indoor in us uh, for usa and indoor volleyball 
he came down. Uh, they invited IOC members. Uh, Sinjin Smith was uh, a big, playing a big role in promoting the, the beach sport. And uh, I think that was the first talk. Hey, we're trying to get beach volleyball in the Olympics. Of course, it was my first event, and I didn't care really about that. I was just so overwhelmed by going to play beach volleyball for Canada. You know make some money and travel the world. Uh, but that was the, that was the first talk of it. And, uh, at least, you know, kind of publicly. And by two years later in 1994, that's when, and again, I would credit Sinjin Smith and his, uh, his focus on even leaving the AVP and being shunned by the AVP, uh, because it was kind of a, you know, a competitive, a competitor to AVP, this world tour event. It was kind of a divide, and, and Sinjin had this bigger vision about the sport going, you know, worldwide and getting into the Olympics. So he left the AVP. It wasn't really allowed to play anymore. He was fined. You know, Sinjin Smith and Randy Stoklos won that tournament in '92, uh, won $70,000 for first, which is, you know, still a huge payday even in today's standards. Went back to the AVP the next weekend was fined $70,000 for missing an AVP event. Oh my gosh. And, you know, we got caught up in the, in the courts or legal battle for it. And, and you know, and, anyways, and that's what kind of, I think, affected Randy Stoklos' decision to continue playing on the world tour. He didn't want to lose his, uh, you know, AVP status and playing domestically. That was pretty important to them. Uh, but Sinjin decided, no, this is what I'm going to do, and uh, started promoting the sport worldwide on these tours, 93, 94, 90, and then finally at the end of 94, you know, the Olympics are coming to Atlanta, a country that certainly has beach volleyball as a focus. It was named an Olympic sport, and um, right away, the schedule for 1995, it went from four or five events in 1994. You can look at the old schedules back then to confirm, but it was around five events, I believe, to, to 17 events all of a sudden announced for the 95 schedule, all Olympic qualifiers. And that's when I thought, hmm, wow, you know, maybe I can play on that. John Child and I just connected as a team at the end of the end of the 1994 season. And it was great timing. Uh, the world tour was just, uh, you know, blowing up. And, um, you know, it named an Olympic sport. And that's when uh, John Child and I started competing full time. And I think that's when in my head, geez, you know, maybe I can do this and, and make, make some money. I was actually a high school phys ed teacher at the time. So I put that career on hold, I thought, for a couple of years. I'll try this Olympic thing. And if it works out, great. But uh, I'll, I'll be coming back to teaching. But I never went back to teaching. Uh, 17 years on the world tour from 92 to yeah, 2008. That, that was, that's what happened to me. Nice, nice. Good to get uh, confirmation on all these stories. So just to add on to what you mentioned about the AVP there, looking at the 96 bracket, obviously it's a little bit different than maybe the qualification is now. Well, not maybe, it definitely is different. Was there a little bit of politicking going on that it looked like the U.S. had more bids than everybody else? And I believe they could qualify through the AVP that not all their teams came through the same qualification that, say, you and John had to go through, right? Yeah, 96, the first year of beach volleyball uh, as an Olympic sport in Atlanta, was definitely a unique format and, and qualification process. Again, the U.S., who was hosting the Olympics, had a 
had a say. They had arguably the best players in the world, part of the AVP. The AVP and the FIVB were kind of at odds. So they worked out a, uh, a system where, okay, on the world tour, uh, all the Olympic qualifiers, that's how all the teams have to qualify. But for the U.S., it was a little bit different. They were going to have uh, the top two U.S. teams from the world tour qualification process come back and be part of an Olympic U.S. Olympic trials. So uh, Sinjin Smith and Carl Hinkle were, was, ended up being the top U.S. team on the world tour and the Olympic qualifying tour. So they actually got a bid as the number one team. They automatically were in the second U.S. team, which was, at the time was a, um, a lesser-known team of Jeff Williams and Carlos Griseño who wasn't really even an AVP team. If they were, they were more of a qualifying team. They played more of the four-man circuit. But they were the only U.S. team that, other than Sinjin, that said, you know, I'm going to give up my, my domestic tour uh, um, status and just go play on the world tour. And they were actually a very good team. They got some podium finishes. And anyway, so they were the second U.S. team. They got inserted into the U.S. Olympic trials where all the big names were there. Mike Dodd, Mike Whitmarsh, Karch, Karai, Ken Stethis, uh, Randy Stoklos, Andy, sorry, Adam Johnson. Uh, you name a, a, top, a top U.S. team, they were all there. Uh, vying for these two spots. And uh, Carlos Persenio and Jeff Williams, U.S. number two from the world circuit, got a bye to the semifinals. But um, they got beat They got beat pretty badly by Karch and Kent, if I remember correctly, 15-5 uh, or 15-7, which I guess was expected. But um, Karch and Kent made it to the finals, and the other semifinal was Randy Stoklos against uh, Randy Stoklos and Adam Johnson against Mike Whitmarsh and Mike Dodd. And unbelievably, this is going to be a great matchup. The winner goes to the Olympics because the top two U.S. teams from that those trials uh, get to go to Atlanta the next uh, uh, you know later that year or the next year. I can't remember exactly when the date was, but. Um, Randy Stoklos lands on a on a volleyball in warm up and does his ankle in you know complete roll. He could hardly play. Tried playing, but they lost fifteen to two. So tough, tough situation. Uh, tough break for uh, for Randy. But that's how Mike Dodd and Mike Whitmarsh qualified. Which you know at the time was wow. They, they were probably the second ranked team, anyways. Uh, Mike and Mike and uh, Karch and Kent. Those two American teams uh, qualified for the Olympics and got inserted into the Olympic draw as the third and fourth seed, just based on reputation and, and you know host country uh, ranking rules. So that was uh, that's how that field of twenty four men were uh, determined. On the women's side, it was a little different. They also had a U.S. trials had had two teams inserted. They only had 18 teams. Uh, it was originally a 16-team draw, but there was a tie at the very bottom, so they got a couple more teams in to make 18 teams on the women's side. And uh, Yeah, that was the first Olympic draw. It was a, a unique qualifying system for sure. What a, what a great memory you have for all these details. Just one more question to kind of set the stage before we start talking about the Olympics. 
I, I believe this was the first time you needed a beach coach where even when you're on the FIUB going through the early 90s, coaching wasn't a thing in beach volleyball. And I think 96 was the first time you needed it. And, and speaking to John Child over dinner one night, it, it was right up till the Olympics that you guys decided to go with Hernan. It's not like you guys had a year of prep, right? Like it was kind of a, you guys felt you didn't need a coach because it, it wasn't required for your sport and the, the Olympics were pushing that, right? So can you kind of confirm this story for us? Because I think a lot of people listening will say, well, beach there's still not a lot of coaching going on and there's teams who go on the world tour who don't travel with a coach but at your time it wasn't even part of the team right yeah very few teams uh, brought a coach i mean uh, some brought like a manager or uh, you know somebody to help with uh, travel and hotels and sh- you know shagging balls and things there may have been a few teams that brought a coach you know, to, to assist, but it was absolutely a, a player-driven model, even at the World Tour. John and I traveled on the World Tour with no uh, coach, um, all the way up until, yeah, we, we uh, got Hernan Humania to be our coach, but it was uh, very strange circumstances, because, uh, but it didn't happen right before the Olympics, it actually happened uh, back in November, the year before the Olympics, okay. so November, I, I think it was November, November 1995, this was still during the Olympic qualifying process, but John and I had already gotten results that it made it almost you know, mathematically impossible to drop out of an Olympic spot, so already we were filling out applications for the Olympics, the COC, Canadian Olympic Committee, had us, you know, filling out paperwork. And Volleyball Canada, who still brand new to the sport, um, sent the applications to us to fill out. And one of the one of the lines on it was your coach. And we sent it back without a coach. We didn't have a coach. You know, even when we saw the line, we're like, these guys don't even know what the sport's about. There's no coaches in beach volleyball. But they sent it back saying, no, no, you have to fill out this line. And we sent it back again saying, you know, with an explanation, no, there's no coaches in beach volleyball, as you know, with all due respect. And they sent it back again. And they say, we cannot accept your application. And I think this was an IOC, uh, inter- you know, uh, international Olympic committee uh, template. They may have just taken the volleyball indoor template and created a beach one. Who knows? But I think it was a typo, really. Uh, that that you know, all the all the teams around the world filling out this paperwork were all of a sudden forced to bring a coach. You cannot apply. We will not accept this application without a coach. So I remember the the conversation with John Child. He phoned me and said, "Mark, you know, we have got this news that you know we can't we can't submit this until we get a coach. So I think we got to get a coach." And it's interesting. I mean, as it turned out, Hernan was an amazing addition to our to our team, and, and you know, the idea of having a coach actually turned out to be a great idea. But at the time, we're like, it's how little focus we had or priority we had on the topic. We had maybe a twenty or thirty second discussion about who we would ask to be our coach. Uh, I remember John saying, "Well, who who can be our coach?" and we. We never really thought it through, and he just said, well, you know, my best indoor coach was uh, was Hernan, or Humania. I said, Hernan Humania, who's that? Oh, you know, he's my former provincial team coach, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, ask him. 
And, uh, you know, I, I wasn't part of the conversation. You know, John phoned up Hernan, and I, I just imagined the conversation was, hey, Hernan, you want to go to the Olympics? And he'd be like, yeah, let's go, let's do it. And John <laughs> phoned me back and said, yeah, Hernan's in. And that was it. <laughs> uh, you know, but that was about five or, you know, I want to actually seven or eight months before the Olympics. So we did have a chance to have Hernan Humania um, with us during some training over the winter and the first four or five events before the uh, games in, in July. He, would, he accompanied us. And, uh, you know, little did we know a valuable role he would end up playing. But it just, it was a, a very unique story how the beach coach came to be, not just in Canada, but that happened all around the world. All of a sudden, the teams were forced to find a coach and they just started showing up on the world tour now. And all these coaches were, were popping up out of the blue. So uh, interesting introduction for beach coaching and kind of a, kind of a, a commentary on, on you know, just uh, again, if you said it, still teams without beach coaches, there's still a kind of a interesting or a lack of understanding really the role of a beach coach on on uh, at all levels of the sport. It's still it's still new, still figuring it all out. This is this is great. Thanks for sharing the details that you have. So when you get to the Olympics, obviously it's brand new for the sport. So I'm just wondering what your expectations are. And to add to that. We recently had Josh Finstock on the show, and he mentioned he had to have a, just a flip of the switch of what his mindset was. But the first time he went, he was almost just happy to be there, and he was soaking everything in, versus the second time he went, there was more of a results-driven attitude that he wasn't just happy to participate at the Olympics or go to the Olympics. He wanted to do well. Do you remember how you felt going into 96, how you and John would have talked and involved Hernan about any type of goal setting? Because for, for your year, it would have been the biggest unknown because it would have been the first time it ever happened. Yeah, it was... Uh... Yeah, I remember it very clearly uh, because it was not only, uh, you know, the first time beach volleyball was at the Olympics, but uh, it was, you know, realization of a childhood dream. I always, my dad was in the Olympics, so I, I from a young age, I thought about the Olympics. And, and then on top of that, John and I won uh, a world tour event in Berlin with basically, you know, the Olympic field, except for those uh, top Americans. And all of a sudden, not only was beach volleyball being talked about in the media, but when we came home from Berlin with this win two weeks before we were going to Atlanta, all of a sudden we were tagged as medal hopefuls and, and you know, maybe even medal, you know, expecting to get a, a medal, but certainly medal hopefuls. And there was a rush of media. And, uh, and half the, the questions from the media was around the sport. Does the sport belong in the Olympics? Beach volleyball, it's all parties and, you know, sex appeal and, and all the questions that we, we endured early on about trying to, you know, convince people that this is a legitimate sport, which, is, which now it's, you know, much more accepted. But uh, back then it was an onslaught of questions about, you know, margaritas and, and bikinis and parties and you know all this kind of stuff totally unrelated we thought at the time so it was, it was really tough to to do that and then on top of that oh mark and, you know mark and john you guys are one of the best in the world and so you know and, and and metal hopeful so there was really i was in those two weeks 
it was uh, it was just probably the most difficult, you know, in terms of mentally and emotionally, just managing all the all the things that were going through our head. Um, John John and I actually with Hernan, we had a, another coach involved, uh, JP Kalu Fry, who was our uh, mental training coach, and he introduced uh, a bunch of stuff to help us prepare. But nothing can prepare you for that. Uh, I was completely overwhelmed with nerves and uh, you know just totally out of my uh, out of my mind in trying to hold it all together and trying to put up a brave front that you know I got this and yeah we just won a world tour event and, you know this is just another tournament but no it wasn't and uh, I went into that first match against Spain and I had the worst match of my life because of the nerves and, um, you know, just my scatterbrained uh, mindset, trying to be tough, but I was in over my head and they served every ball at me and I just, you know, crapped the bed. <laughs> and uh, we lost 15 to 1 in about 20 minutes. This is back side out scoring uh, format and uh, 15 to 1 in, in, in yeah, 20 minutes. And um, it was devastating. So, yeah, my mindset was uh, trying to be tough, but uh, totally overwhelmed. And I think that's pretty that's pretty common for anybody entering their first Olympics, especially one that was kind of at the last second inserted into this metal hopeful tag and overwhelmed with media and things. So, uh, luckily, things turned around for us. It's a double elimination format. Uh, where you just you have to lose two games before you're out, and that hit in a rock bottom moment uh, after a day of, of collecting our thoughts and team meetings and you know trying to uh, rebound. Amazingly, we went from playing our worst to our best. Uh, in, in particularly me, you know, I couldn't get any worse. I just got embarrassed on national television. Uh, 15 to 1, uh, it can't get any worse. And we, you know, the pressure seemed to be off, and we just rattled right through the loser's bracket. Uh, we beat Spain, we beat Czech, we beat um, Germany, we beat Cuba. We beat that same Spanish team again. Uh, this time we beat them 15 to 4. So you can imagine what had to change in just a few days uh, in, in mindset, just the overall uh, comfort level. We played uh, our best, and yeah, we eventually went on to, to win the bronze. So amazing, you know, what, how mental, uh, how emotional going to an, an Olympics in your mindset. And we were lucky. I mean, if it was any other format, we would have just bombed out at our first Olympics and, yeah, hoped our second Olympics was going to go better. But we had a chance to, uh, to rebound, and our first Olympics turned into, you know, our best one. Yeah, can you let us behind the scenes and just let us know what's, what helped uh, contribute to the mindset there? So for you to do uh, basically a 180 in performance, I imagine there's no right thing to say after a match like that that's going to make you bounce back. But what was some of the, the meetings or what was some of the prep you did before the event with JP, who you just mentioned, and Hernan and John that kind of helped do this? Because I, I think uh, just flipping the mindset, that might be a, just a little too surface level. Can you let us just in on what those what those hard moments were that really helped you change your performance? Well, absolutely. Uh, John and I were introduced to JP Palou Fry from a uh, another 
guy in the volleyball community here, Gus Sopolis, who uh, was a good beach player back in the day, played on that Ontario Pro Circuit. Good friend and um, runs Milton Edge Volleyball now here in Ontario. He introduced us to his friend uh, who was studying in the U.S., uh, you know, was was studying at, uh, I believe, Harvard, you know, just came out uh, very interested in the emotional intelligence field and was um, involved with, you know, at some level, the same mental training program, developing the same mental program that the Chicago Bulls and Phil Jackson was involved with. And the term mindfulness, which is a big buzzword now, what, 30 years later, almost, 25 years later, uh, mindfulness was, uh, we went on a mindfulness program in 1995 or six months leading up to the Olympics. So uh, emotional intelligence, uh, developing awareness, it was all kind of brand new stuff that I don't know why or how we got, you know, agreed to do it. But as it turned out, that stuff was played a huge role in our careers, really. And certainly at that event, being able to overcome the emotions and the disappointment and um, all the doubt that entered our minds from that first match and coming back to, you know, what I, I would say, you know, amazing, honest, uh, emotionally intelligent conversation and discussions within our team, John and I, Hernan and JP, overnight, I, I remember that hour and a half, two hour meeting that night after that disastrous uh, match against Spain. I can recall it. You know, there was a lot of focus on me because it was, you know, it was me that pretty much got every serve and broke down. And although John probably wasn't playing his best, it was a little less focus on his mindset. But uh, I can recall, like, I had the best team in the world right there uh, in terms of the support. They, like, there was no finger pointing. And it was, it was all so positive. And it's just reminders of why we were there and, and how, how we got there. We're one of the best teams in the world. And it was just like a, you get pushed down, but it's just got back up. You're on your horse and you fell off, but you got back in the saddle. And it was just a, an hour and a half of, no, 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 we got this and here's why. And this is what we're going to do. And it was just like, forget about the past. Here's the, here's the opportunity. Uh, to turn this around, and what exactly are we going to do to to mentally uh, get back on track and, and uh, dismiss exactly what we were been, we've been training? This mindfulness, bring awareness to the moment, and think about what we can do right now in our minds to get back on track, uh, an on ramp, so to speak. We just fell off completely. So here's the opportunity, and, and there was no dwelling. There's no finger pointing. There's no saying, "Ha hey, ha, this, you know, what do you do? You know, why'd you do this?" And we didn't spin our wheels. We spent an hour of just gathering momentum and real finding real tangible reasons why we could turn this around, and um, you know, created a story about uh, what we were going to do, starting like now, in preparation for tomorrow's game, and, and it was. A, a real, yeah, mindful approach, uh, developing awareness to what happened and what we're going to do. And I was amazed the next day, 
right out of the right out of the gates. Yeah, we smoked. We didn't just play better. We smoked our opponents. It was 15-2 to Sweden. It was 15. Like nobody got 10 points on us that whole way, including that team, Spain, who beat us 15 to one a few days earlier. You know, we, we beat them 15-4. We beat Cuba 15-4. We beat Germany 15-6 or 15-7. Like these are tough teams that you know normally are top eight to, in, in the world and. We just, you know, even in the bronze, we beat uh, Portugal, you know, 12-5, 12-8 in a different scoring format back then. But uh, we just beat them badly. And, and we almost beat Karch. Uh, I, I shouldn't say almost beat. We didn't have a match point. But we certainly were a lot more competitive than we had, had thought. Remember, nobody had played Karch Karai, the great, you know, gold medal champion uh, the guy in the pink hat. It was there was such an aura around him and, and the AVP players, and so it was pretty, pretty tough to get our minds wrapped around the fact that hey, you know what, we can beat these guys. It was there was nothing in our past to prove that any of the world tour teams could beat the top AVP teams. But um, you know, it was a it was a good match. It was uh, we lost fifteen eleven, but certainly I would say you know had them thinking. <laughs> Um, yeah, if we had it back, we probably would have felt a little more uh, competitive. But uh, either way, we we definitely turned turned it around, and uh, it was this mindfulness training that I think was our huge uh, differentiator for our team. No question about it. And we had a friend of the show, Garrett May. You've worked closely with him. He mentioned he could never really dial it in with uh, journaling and little things. But one thing he said that you were were always top tier at was just daily habits and trying to get everything down to like a daily goal. Was that something you were doing at 96 or was that something that grew over your career? No, that's, you know, really J.P. Palou Fry, who's now, you know, a world leader on the topic of emotional intelligence. He runs his own company uh, institute for health and human potential he works with uh, you know nfl and, and the u.s navy and top corporations uh, you know and, and this emotional intelligence piece has become huge but back in in the mid-90s this was not a, a, a common topic and he you know that this this program was about daily habits and and just like uh, we Daily, we practice our bumping and our setting and our side out and our serve and, you know, the physical side of it. Uh, he was of the opinion that emotionally you needed to practice emotional skills and, um, you know, developing awareness and uh, openly discussing things, uh, you know, your emotions and just developing a, a daily a practice of this kind of um, self-reflection and and healthy discussion within your team, and yeah, it was about you know our lives change, not just our our play on the court, but this awareness training and this mindfulness training and you know meditation even uh, at, at some stages uh, really crept into our daily lives. It, it uh, you know beach volleyball became a, a uh, much bigger and much more important to me after realizing that, you know, this is helping me become a, a better human, a better man, a better husband, and, and eventually, but you know, a, a father. And, and as as kind of hairy fairy as that sounds, and trust me, John Child is you know 
uh, as the most skeptical about that kind of thing. And I remember the first year doing this, there was times when John and even myself, but I, I, I would say I was a little bit more open to it, but like, what are we doing? This stuff is, this is not volleyball. <laughs> but you know, after one year of doing this, uh, I was amazed when one of the interviews we had, John was like, you know, mental training is, was the biggest part of this. And I was like, oh, so he's, he's on board now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, daily habits. Uh, I, I, I developed a morning routine of personal mental training. And to this day, when I talk to young athletes, and yeah, you're right, I was coaching John, John May's son, Garrett. John May was one of our Olympic coaches, and Garrett was uh, looking for some personal coaching. And that was one of the pieces that I tried to add to his plate was, uh, you know, this morning routine or, or daily routine to check in on, on you know, life, life skills and, and um, qualities, characteristics. Are you building the right characteristics and, and emotional skills to help you be not only the best volleyball player and manage any, any moment, any tough moment on the court, but are you also committing to that off the court, and I felt the two were, you know, worked hand in hand. And um, the better man you were becoming, or the closer you were becoming to your, you know, how, what you envisioned for your life, the closer you got to, you know, being the kind of athlete you wanted, you dreamed of. And uh, you know, that's that's Garrett might have been talking about that because I might have forwarded him all my notes and <laughs> daily journals and and uh, yeah, visual. Uh, whatever you want to call it, hand, hand books or workbooks that we had over the years. I had, you know, countless. I have, I have a whole bin in the, in the basement of all the, all that kind of work, mental training work. I definitely developed a, a strong work ethic in that area. So one thing that I'm kind of leaning towards with my own coaching and own development that I think mental training is fascinating and definitely important, but I'm of the belief that there has to be an action associated with it where we're playing a physical sport and there has to be some action involved. And one thing that came up in researching and talking to friends but that said uh, we're going to get you on the show is one thing that came up was uh, your, your secret workouts or, or the way you kind of built confidence in your competitiveness. Is Were these things that you anchored to when you're, you know, talking about your belief and, and maybe after a tough loss, you're sitting down, why do I deserve to do these things? Were, were those some of the actions that you could anchor to that you could convince yourself that you were, you were worthy of feeling this way, that you deserve to perform at your highest level? Like, what were some of the actions that you associated with all this, this work you were putting into your daily habits? Well, yeah, for me, like, you know, beach volleyball, of course, you're part of a team and sometimes part of a bigger Team Canada or Team Ontario or, you know, maybe your club has a, a you know, team, you know, a, a beach program or something. So that, to me, it's still very much an individual sport. And uh, I, I grew up with, I would say, very low confidence. Um, and because of my late entry into the volleyball scene, you know, I, on a lot of the indoor teams, I rode the bench and I was nowhere near in my mind, you know, a, a, a national team level athlete. I didn't even make the provincial team like it was. So it was really a, tough for me individually to have a, a, a belief system that could, you know, allow me to compete against the best teams in, or players in Canada, let alone the world. So it was, it, I realized early on as I, 
got immersed into the sport and, and started rising the ranks and, and becoming one of the better players that I needed to do something that was, you know, secret training or uh, it was more of a personal belief building training because I had trouble believing in myself. I, I, I like I said, very low confidence uh, as a natural thing, you know, doubts and, and fear and, and, you know, all the emotions that accompany poor performance and, and kind of spinning wheels. Uh, I, I didn't feel deserving. No, no way. So I realized once I developed these goals that, you know, I want to be the best in Canada or I want to, you know, represent Canada on the world tour. I want to make the Olympics. And all these goals were just not realistic unless I was doing something that could help me overcome these obstacles, my height, uh, my lack of experience, you know, just, you know, my, my overall confidence level. So the word uh, differentiators, I, I can't exactly, you know, it might have been, I don't know exactly where I got that word from, but I, I realized that I've got to do something that nobody else is doing. I've got to develop a program. And this is back before, like I said, coaches, programs and structured, you know, there was nobody really that I ask and say, hey, what do I do? Uh, uh, this is my goal. What do I do? It was all up to me. And I started designing just like some written up programs uh, that I could think, you know, this is going to give me an advantage. And little did I know that doing that, and you know, as an example, I thought, I'm going to wake up. You know, I think I was one of the first players to actually start practicing beach volleyball. Back then, it was just like, hey, we're just four of us are going to go down and play all day. Somebody can't make it. There's only three of us. Now we can't really do anything. So we'll pack up and go home. I was one of the first person to say, well, no, let's, you know, why don't we do some drills? Drills, that's an indoor thing. But, <laughs> uh, and I actually... I think I've known for um, this one-man early morning practice routine that I started doing. And I don't remember the year exactly. I was probably around 19 or 20 years old, and I, I just decided, you know what? I'm going to get up really early. I'm going to be the only one on the beach, and I'm just going to develop a bunch of one-man drills, which I did. And uh, I strapped the net and a bunch of balls to my back, and I biked down. I was lucky enough to live right by the beach, and I set up the net. And, you know, occasionally I get somebody come by, hey, you need an extra? I'm like, no, I'm okay. I got it. And I have a list of one-man drills that I started doing. And I remember the feeling I started getting after those workouts. And this is an example of some of the things that I did to, to build my own thing my own belief system. And I remember the feeling walking out of those, biking home at, you know, 7.30 or 8 o'clock when, I, you know, other people were just kind of waking up and coming to the beach potentially. I might be the only guy in Canada doing this. Certainly, you know, in beach volleyball wasn't that big a thing. And, and in fact, I started thinking I might be the only guy in the world doing this. And, you know, just that understanding and, and that kind of self-talk made me, yeah, uh, I didn't realize it then, but it was really contributing to uh, my personal belief system. And, you know, eventually when I did find myself in those really tough 
challenging moments in matches, uh, but, you know, playing Ed Drakic and John Child or Ed Drakic and John Kanjar and Andy Cole and John May and all these uh, Canadian beach legends, uh, you know, I found myself way more confident than I thought I'd be. And, and it just started snowballing. And so the more I saw some value in doing these uh, homemade programs, these self-made, you know, I, I thought through it. I, and, I, and it was less what I was doing. Who cares about the drill? It was the fact that I was doing it. So, you know, when I talk to young athletes, I'm saying, okay, well, yeah, you belong to this program, and this is what all the coaches, and this is what everybody in the country is doing for training, but what are you doing uh, that's, that can differentiate yourself? And even the teams that I coach indoor, we always talk about, you know, what are we doing differently than others? And, and that's our advantage. That's what's going to set us apart. But nobody else does this. Nobody else approaches it this way. And, you know, slight differences uh, we'll bring some attention to and because we thought of it, and it's a confidence builder. At the end of the day, these are all confidence builders, and that's what I needed the most work in. I needed to overcome doubt, self-doubt. I needed to develop confidence. I needed to overcome, you know, the fear of, of performing at clutch times in front of everybody. And these, uh, this personal belief system, this uh, mindfulness, this, this daily commitment to my own, my own program to differentiate myself absolutely played a, a big role. Now, one thing that I've come across just with my courses in education is just uh, the human behavior. They call it the law of diminishing marginal utility, which uh, a quick example would be, I like ice cream cake, but if I eat it every day, there's eventually going to be a point where I'm just not that fired up to eat ice cream cake anymore. How did you keep your enthusiasm to do this for as long as you have? Like you mentioned the, the personal workouts you're doing, like all the years on the world tour. How are you staying connected to your goals? Or maybe you already answered this with your daily habits, but was there ever a point where you just weren't in the mood to do it and still had to drag yourself out of bed and do these activities that you had planned? Well, you know, yes, of course. It's not easy to, to come up with commitments and, and be disciplined to them. And, and did I... Was I, you know, the older I get, the, the more perfect uh, uh, commitment I had. No, I, there was definitely times where I, you know, just you know, mess up, and um, you know, I and I learned, I learned about commitment. Uh, John May taught me a lot about commitment, and commitment doesn't mean you're perfect. In fact, commitment, just like in beach volleyball, you you, you can't go through a, a match being perfect. You don't win 21-0. You make a ton of errors, but it's your ability just to come back to it and, and recommit and um, stay focused and, and not, you know, have long stretches where you, you're, you messed up. So I think that was something that I had inside me. I, I had a father who was a, a ridiculously disciplined athlete. I grew up, my dad was like so committed to beach ball, uh, sorry, to uh, canoeing. Uh, even when I was a teenager, he was still canoeing on a marathon canoe circuit in Ontario and, and competing and training every day. And I grew up thinking, wow. So I had that inspiration daily. My dad was just a physical or, you know, physical, physically demonstrated that to me. He didn't say much to me, but he taught me about, commitment and working through and discipline and, 
and things like that. And I just had, um, you know, a good perspective on it. So, and I think the other thing that drove me was my passion for beach volleyball. You know, I never, I never felt so committed to a sport until I found my love for, for beach volleyball. I, I played everything. And, I, and in fact, there was a moment in my life, 14 or 15 years old, where I even talked to my dad. I said, Dad, I'm not going to be an Olympic athlete. I'm not going to be a professional athlete because I love too many sports. I, you know, I love playing uh, soccer all summer. I love playing, you know, hockey in the winter. I love it when spring comes and we get to play, you know, baseball. And, you know, there was a seasonal approach back then and a multi-sport approach. And I, I was committed to it. I, I just loved the change. And I always thought, well, to be an Olympics athlete or a pro athlete, you kind of have to specialize at some stage. You know, so that's, I, I think... What you know, my pet when I fell in love with beach volleyball, which was like 19 years old, is when I really thought, Wow, this this sport is amazing, and I'm good at it. And I think that's you know, I think getting in touch with how much you love this game, why you're playing, and just the you know, your personal connection to it and, and relationship to the sport, forget everything else. Just you and this sport and your love for it. If you can tap into that every day, I think it's a lot easier to commit to any goals or, you know, a lot of people make commitments to something that, you know, they're just not really that committed to. They just make it because that's the thing to do or that's what parents or, you know, that's what their coaches are telling them to do. And and I think it just has to come within and, and, you know, this emotional intelligence piece of, of you know asking yourself questions i think that's this this daily training it's about asking yourself questions and coming up with answers uh, you know I, I say this to athletes you have everything you need you have all the answers inside of you stop looking outside of you to get the answers stop asking you know coaches and parents and others to say hey what do i do and, you know you have it inside of you, you just have to ask yourself of course look for support of course you've got people around you with experience and knowledge but there's nothing more valuable than asking yourself questions and figuring out some answers and and trying them and uh, owning them and uh, if you love this game hey figure it out delve into that a little bit why do you love it And, and i think when you're totally connected with how much you love this game that helps you through those tough moments when it's 6 a.m and you're dead tired and nobody's watching nobody's holding you accountable uh, do you do that extra set and do you push through i think that's uh, that's a piece of it how much of this confidence is getting your attention during a match so let's let's just say it i think over the course of your career i think you were targeted on serve a lot so you're the one who really controls if your team's going to side out and how you're contributing to winning so are you thinking about all these workouts and how you've built confidence and how it's a skill when you're in the match or where does your attention go when you are being targeted and you're the one who has to get it done on game day well the uh, the pressure that you feel as an athlete that's you know almost an individual sport obviously a doubles game but uh, if you're being if you're the focus of another team's game plan which as you mentioned i was i probably got 85 percent of the serves my whole career 
uh, because I was the shorter player and probably had the least amount of skill up at the net. My net play was, you know, questionable. So, of course, you're going to serve me. Uh, how I dealt with that and managed to find uh, this this belief system that I'm talking about in those crunch times uh, was an evolution. And still to the very last rally that I had in 2008 was a constant battle. And a couple things. Uh, I think I, I was pretty, I developed a really good bridge. I, I call it a bridge because you definitely have to, in your mind, connect what you're doing in preparation for that moment with that moment. Right? If you just go through your off season of training, uh, you know, and, and and you don't think about that moment, and I say that moment, that moment comes every match. But those, so I'll say those moments, crunch time, where you know it's time now. I I gotta get this side out, or we're gonna lose. I gotta feel my my mojo right now, or else we're gonna lose. And so I, you know, that's the moment where you, you know, and it, and it is an awareness moment where this is it. And Mark, can you summon some courage right now? Or are you folding up? Are you going to just let the circumstance dictate what happens now and, and you fall into the trap that the other team is trying to set up for you? So it's a constant battle to bring awareness to that moment and summon courage. And I think one of the things I did better and better as my career went along was connecting my training and all the tough moments in workouts and practices with that moment, that coming moment in mind and, and preparing for that moment uh, constantly, right? Whether it was in the gym, on the court, uh, getting up out of bed, I just thought about those moments. Those are the defining moments. And those were my toughest moments. And, I, and, and and trust me, I folded up in a lot of those moments. You know, I you said I've played in over 160 tournaments. Well, that's true. And, you know, 160 tournaments, I don't know how many hundreds of matches that is. Hundreds of matches, I folded up. <laughs> um, but another hundreds of matches, uh, I somehow found the right level of courage to perform well and, and, and win. Uh, so it's, yeah, so this, this connection, this bridge, I, I, I really got better at, you know, and when I'm in the gym and I'm forcing through the last reps of the, you know, whatever, you know, interval rowing, I, you know, as an example, I did a lot of rowing, stationary rowing was something that became part of my personal program to help kind of physically straighten out uh, with some back muscle uh, workouts throughout the winter. If I'm in clutch moment where I'm about to give in because I'm tired, I would connect that moment to think, you know, it's, it's 20 all and I'm, I'm getting served and, and can I just fight through this moment and feel some courage and feel find, find the right perspective to compete hard and um, that, that skill of, of bridging I think was um, you know an important thing that I try to pass along to again athletes that I'm, that I'm coaching that have trouble with those moments everybody has trouble with those moments some are better at it than others and, and 
and it's a comfort it's a comfort level in for those moments it, and the other thing that i think i think it's a common thing now with athletes you know just managing pressure and obviously those moments are, are big moments you know olympics right you, you can't convince anybody that uh, this is just another tournament, and it's true. You're playing against the teams you always play against on the world tour. It's yeah, it's an eight by eight meter court. It's the same height. It's on a you know, it's on a beach. There's nothing different about this match than any other match on the world tour. But that's a load of baloney. When you you know when you come down to it, it's the Olympics. There's no there's no sidestepping that moment. That this is a way bigger moment than you know some practice game. Uh, so I think not fooling yourself, you don't want to overwhelm yourself, but I think if you're inserting yourself into this world tour environment and you, you want to make it to the Olympics, well, you better be prepared for a, you know, a pressure moment and seek it and, and find some, you know, the term comfort with discomfort was a term that, we learned in the nineties, like you're, this is what beach volleyball is, is, is finding the, the sweet pain of, of facing doubt, finding the, uh, searching for that, expecting that moment. Here it comes. Uh, how are you going to react to it? Are you going to, are you going to just go to default and not believe in yourself and go into hoping mode? Uh, no. No, I, I've got to summon some courage. I've got to, I've got to feel my mojo. I've got to choose my mental anchor and get on my on-ramp and, and barrel through this pressure moment. Not try to sidestep it. Not try to avoid it. But prepare for it. It's coming. What am I doing now to get ready for that moment? And I think that's what the top athletes develop over the years. It's just a comfort with that moment. And you see people, you know, the best performers in the world. You just see them remain focused and, and, and kind of want those moments. And that's a special quality. You could say you want those moments, but do you really? You know, uh, that's, that's, a, that's something you have to, have to be uh, thinking about. Because otherwise those moments will eat you up very quickly. And you'll be losing a lot of matches more so than you win because you're not preparing honestly for those moments. Is it fair to say that John Child shared this belief and this compete level that you had? Because we just had uh, Mike Sleen on the show, and he mentioned he can count on one hand how many practice matches or drills he's ever won against you guys. And, and Child's told me over dinner, like the battles you and him would have over short court in the winter when no one else was around. So it sounds like you never really took a day off from this competitive spirit where, oh, it's Tuesday morning at Ashbridge, isn't it just rained? I just don't feel like it. Like you're, you're, you were dialed in and you were going to win every drill, every game you played, like even if it was just off season in Toronto here, right? Well, you know, I guess I've developed that reputation and there's some truth to it. I, I am super competitive and, um, you know, having said that, you know, it's, it's interesting that I, I'm known for, you know, mental toughness, but I would, I would say that I was one of the weakest mentally growing up and my lack of confidence was, you know, I couldn't, I was just, you know, it was a mess. And so it's interesting how I was dedicated to compete and, and work hard at it and, and develop a work ethic. It was out, it was out of necessity because you're right. I wanted to win. 
And I don't know if it was because I grew up with a athletic dad and a, and a guy that just, I just saw him work so hard and want to win so badly. He'd, he'd do everything off court and in his daily life to prepare for those races on, uh, as a canoeist. And I, I think his influence, you know, was definitely part of that to raise my competitiveness. But I've just known for that, for whatever reason, all through my my youth, I would just compete. It was just something that I did. I wanted to win. And, and I, you know, not to say I didn't give in, and, and I, I, I've lost a lot, I can tell you that. But yes, um, John, John and I were a, a good team that way. I don't think I've met anybody else that wanted to win this badly and, and naturally could find ways to win um, more than John. And I think he respected that in me too. Uh, and, we, and although we had you know, very different personalities, very different approaches perhaps, and I would, I would say that he had just, just this natural rock uh, you know, mentality that, no, 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 I don't care what's happened. I'm winning. And, you know, I, I, I use John a lot in my coaching because he taught me just to, you know, he taught me the screw everything else. I'm not losing mentality. And he's, he's used that, that line to me in, in so many matches <laughs> as I've gone out and won for us so many times. He'd be frustrated with me and my, you know, overthinking perhaps. And he'd just say like, screw all this, I'm, I, I'm winning this anyways. Um, and he did that. So, you know, he, the, the John May, or sorry, the John Child, I'm winning at any cost, like, he taught me that. He taught me how to just win anyways. No excuses, no thinking. I don't care what's just happened. I'm winning. And, um, you know, and I think he also appreciated my little bit more I don't know what you, want to, what you want to call it, cerebral approach to developing, you know, a formula for winning. And together, we uh, we were a good team that way. We were very competitive at all times. We did not want anybody to think that they could beat us, including, you know, Mike Sleen and, and his partner, who George at the time, uh, who came to train with us and was, you know, top five teams in the country trying to knock us down. We never wanted to give anybody even a sniff of, of confidence around that. So practices, yeah, um, we're not losing those. Uh, you know, we were, we, I, I just had, we just had that. We wanted to, we never wanted to lose, which, you know, I think everybody's like that, but in some cases it might have been an even uh, an unhealthy <laughs> I, I would border. I would border on an unhealthy need to win, uh, which you know, that's that's another discussion. And one thing I wanted to touch on with you, obviously, you're, you're into your coaching career as well. But when you were playing, maybe you didn't have the distractions that social media and some athletes have today. But looking back, you guys were sponsored. You were in magazines. You were on cereal boxes. You're you're winning medals at the Olympics, and then you're coming back to play at national championships, right? So, how did you guys ever handle the the distractions or the outside noise? Where, I mean, obviously teams knew you were the top, but I imagine they weren't taking a day off because if you get a chance to play against Olympians, what do they have to lose? So you're probably getting everybody's best game, right? So, 
How did you guys deal with the expectations or maybe the the outside factors that said like, oh, it's Mark and John that they should win versus like the joy of, of confirming and winning nationals as much as you did? Yeah, you know, I, I told you we had a crash course in um, dealing with media and those kind of distractions, sponsors, and, you know, with the Olympics, our first Olympic experience and, and you know, crashing and burning in that first match and going back and, and you know, now, and after winning the medal, of course, that media onslaught and the sponsors, it just, it just you know, times 10. And so we had just had a crash course in having to deal with that whole side of it, the business side of it. And quite frankly, if we were going to continue playing beach as a profession, we needed to embrace it. And so it just became as uncomfortable as I was with it, and speaking in public and that whole scene. Um, it became a necessity to earn income and be able to do this uh, professionally. So, um, yeah, it was uh, just part of it. How, how we dealt with it? Well, I think, again, that crash course was important. Uh, our, competitive, our competitive level, you know, it, it was almost like, well, we can't come back to Canada from the World Tour, or from the Olympics. And I, and, and I remember it happened right away. We left Atlanta early. We missed closing ceremonies because uh, the tour back here wanted us back to play in the Toronto event which was, you know, that weekend, uh, you know, a few days after winning bronze. And you can imagine the pressure that comes. We just won bronze medal at the Olympics. Uh, coming back to Toronto beaches where all these Canadian teams, good teams, Jody Holden, Conrad Leineman, and Dave Holmes, and Gatsky, and, you know, all these players were like, um, we, we want to, we can beat these guys. And imagine if we came back and, and came ninth at a Toronto event because we lost. <laughs> there was a lot of pressure. Um, and so we right away we were like, you know, we got to deal with this. We cannot lose to these guys. There's no way we can lose because, you know, our sponsors and our our status as number one team in Canada, we have to maintain that. We we got to go on the world tour. If we lose our status here, how are we gonna, you know, we may not be able to go on the world tour. We may not get the funding or, or be chosen. So it was like, and those events were yeah, mentally very difficult because you play in the perfect environment of the Olympics and even the world tour where the courts are perfect and that and refs and the professionalism of it coming back to the Canadian standards which you know it was pretty good but it certainly wasn't uh, you know a maintenance crew at every court and uh, you know there was a lot of uh, I guess a, you know, lower standards and so to deal with that and you know uh, it was yeah, it was so some of the toughest tournaments were those Canadian events trying to beat all those uh, quite strong uh, other Canadian teams. So um, yeah, it was, it was just part of the job, and uh, we took it more. You know, we were professionals, and we just really was proud of that and tried to protect it. We wanted to be the most professional team in Canada. And we had every reason to be now that we were bronze medalists and, and sponsored and and had this growing community around us. You know, again, before social media and YouTube and video and everything, it, even the internet was brand new, introduced to us at, at, at Atlanta. So there was, you know, it was just a, a small community that we were proud to, to represent. 
and uh, took it more seriously, I think, than anybody else. Awesome. I'm just looking at the clock and we've gone into overtime here. So I want to thank you for taking the time here. But one thing we like to do to, to close out every episode is just to tell a, a funny story that volleyball's provided you. And you, you've told some great stories already. I'm just wondering if you have one that uh, can give our listeners a laugh before we let you go. Well, there's this uh, one time, and I want to think it's in, in 1995 or 1996, during the early years, John and I, you know, whenever you go to Brazil and any pro beach player can attest to this that's been to Brazil, it's a really tough event. First of all, there's so many good Brazilian teams. It's stoking hot, especially if you have to play Brazil at home. They have, you know, fanatical home crowd just booing you and distracting you. Uh, so we're playing Brazil in, a, in, in the stadium. And um, it was a big match. And I can't remember exactly the stage, but uh, we're getting we're getting thumped. And it's it's ten or eleven to three. This is a side out one one game to fifteen side out scoring, and it's just not looking good. Uh, Timeout. You know we're delaying. We're, we're boiling hot. This might have been in the in, in like February or something. So we're coming from our winter, and yeah. Bleak outlook. Uh, so we're all of a sudden sitting in the timeout, one of the side changes, and we see the referee and the uh, and you know kind of swatting around his head, trying to shoo what looked like you know a bug or insect away, and he was would stop. He was stepped back from his spot, his, his standing position on the on the ref stand, and was ready to kind of you know come come off the ref stand, and, and then I noticed the. Brazilian players who were already out in the court waiting for us to come out. We were delaying in our, underneath the shade. They started kind of swatting around their heads. And all of a sudden, we see what looked like a, almost like a black cloud of uh, what we realized now after a few moments was bees. A swarm of bees came into the stadium and started kind of landing and, and collecting and, and swarming uh, on the ref stand and was buzzing around everywhere. John and I were in our time of hope. We didn't see any bugs on us or bees or anything, but the, the, the ref, the other two players, the equipment, all of a sudden, and, and within minutes, there was like a thick stack of bees that just landed on the on the ref stand, and so the ref obviously departed. The players departed. The whole stadium was kind of in disarray. Certainly, our match was got interrupted. And before I know it, they're clearing out the whole stadium. You know, thousands of spectators being asked to leave. Uh, the players were dismissed from the court. And you know, you keep looking over at that ref stand, and it's now black with layers of bees on it so um yeah we were like well we could use the break uh we go into the air-conditioned players tent and just kind of waiting for whatever's going to happen happen and sure enough the fire department eventually came these guys in a full suit going up and spraying the the ref stand and getting you know get trying to distract the bugs or bees and, and shoo them away in a safe manner and in the meantime, there was an Italian player, uh, Andrea Ghirghi, who was actually, you know, quite educated, a uh, budding scientist. Wouldn't surprise me if he's in the field of science 
now biology, and he was talking about bees. He says, well, you know, bees are attracted to the color blue. And we're like, okay, you know. And I don't, you know, I, I've never even looked that up. But uh, he was saying, that, and sure enough, the rest stand is all blue. It's really the only blue thing in the state. Everything's yellow, Banco de Brazil, but this whole rest stand was blue. The players on the other side, the, the Brazilians, uh, were wearing blue sponsored hats, blue shorts. And here we are in our Canada, red and whites and, and you know, no, no bees around us, but they were definitely attacking ref and, and, and players. So sure enough, they got rid of the bees. After about an hour, they called us back. It was 11 to 3 for the other team. Um, and they resumed play. And, you know, we, we took it as, a, as a, well, an extended timeout. For sure, a brand new uh, face to the game. No, no fans who were like all over us. Uh, the, the other players on the other side, the Brazilians, were like clearly not in the, in the same mode. They were, it was a fresh start. And we battled our way back and eventually won the match 15-13. And it was just such a unique thing to happen. And, uh, you know, John and I always joked about the bees of Brazil, how they're our friends. And they, you know, and, and from that day on, we kind of had a little tradition of, of making sure we had some honey in the mornings of, of our breakfast in Brazil, just as good luck and, and almost like a, a thank you to uh, the, the bees of Brazil. So, you know, it's a unique, unique story uh, over 170 world tour events there's a, a ton of unique stories but that one kind of always uh, you know comes up and you know when john and i get together it's uh, definitely a unique thing so we we thank the bees of brazil because uh, they helped us win that big match <laughs> that's amazing another good one to add to our list so want to thank you for taking the time. I know it feels like we just scratched the surface and you and I could talk all day about this stuff, but uh, I mean, I have taken a lot of your time, so I'll let you get back to your day, but thanks for sharing all the, the stories and the details. I definitely learned a lot and I, I bet our listeners did too. Well, thanks, Josh. Uh, good scroll down memory lane. Uh, hopefully there's some other people out there that uh, don't mind looking back 20, 25 years ago and, uh, and listening to some, some of those stories. I appreciate you uh, having me on. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Josh. Take care.